We remain standing. <laughs> we remain standing for the reading of the gospel. Luke's gospel, the 12th chapter, beginning at verse 32. Jesus is the speaker here. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The Reverend Dr. Janet Hunt writes a blog called Dancing with the Word. Blogging about this passage, she tells of Jesse, one she describes as a true original. On Easter morning three years ago, she led 50 of her parishioners in an early service at the Fairview Cemetery in DeKalb, Illinois. It was a cold Easter morning, and they were bundled against that cold. She asked members of her congregation to speak aloud the names of the loved ones buried there, not just from the past year, but from all the years, and it was a long list. The list was broken up into groups of eight or ten. And then she would pause the group and she would say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And those bundled believers would respond enthusiastically, He is risen indeed. Alleluia. As Reverend Dr. Hunt made her way through the list and paused to ask if there were other names to share, and that's when Jesse, the true original, piped up I forgot my gloves. I forgot my wallet. I forgot my hearing aids, but I'm having a great time. <laughs> and they all smiled and responded, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I've been in some cold cemeteries, and they can be a cold place of reminded vulnerability for me. And to go there on a cold Easter morning and to say Christ is risen echoes with courage and with hope and with faith. Our text starts, do not be afraid, little flock. And the emphasizing words are little, little, little flock, small, vulnerable, powerless but do not be afraid. They only went to Walmart. 
but do not be afraid. They only wondered what mom and dad might have packed in the lunch. They hoped for cookies, but figured it'd be another healthy apple. And off they went to Sandy Hook Elementary. They went to worship at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, but do not be afraid. They went to prayers at a mosque, but do not be afraid. They went to a church in New Zealand, but do not be afraid. They went to Bible study in Charleston, but do not be afraid. Sadly, frighteningly, this list could go on and take up every line of every page that I normally use to write a sermon, and I would have to ask you for more paper. And that's just for the mass killings this year. Do not be afraid rings hollow when we are the little, little flock. And yet, and yet the admonition, do not be afraid, shows up again and again and again in the Bible, especially in places where fear jumps out of the shadows and seems like their normal response. And so in Exodus, Moses tells escaped slaves who cannot swim and who have no weapons to defend themselves, and with the Red Sea lapping over their ankles and the thunder of Pharaoh's chariots in their ears, he says, don't be afraid. God's not finished yet. You couldn't blame them for thinking, yeah, but we need some really creative thing to happen here. And the admonition, fear not, comes at moments when we mortals stand on the verge of being overwhelmed by the divine. And so rough shepherds swaggered out of the village to watch over the flocks, guarding against predators. They were brave. They were tough. They knew it. They probably told people they were not afraid of anything until the angels lit up the hillside like a night game in a major league ballpark. Uh, this was not in the shepherd handbook. Overwhelmed with the sacred, terror squeezing heart and soul. Both times of great fear make us feel small, small. Don't be afraid. That is so hard to hear, harder to do. And yet, and yet I'm persuaded that these words are not about stopping the flow of adrenaline, but about deciding who and what will define me, what will characterize my heart and life and soul. I may choose to be defined by fear basing my decisions and actions on that fear. And I fear that there's not enough in the world, and so I, I choose greed to get all that I can. Or I fear the white supremacists with weapons of war at Walmart, and so I arm myself with more weapons from Walmart and adopt a macho myth that I would act differently in the 30 to 60 seconds that a mass killing takes place. We fear growing old and being forgotten. We fear that disease, the final one, would define us. We fear separation. We fear death as that thief that comes to take life and love, the robber of all that's good. And in fear, we hoard life, refusing to give ourselves to something beyond ourselves because of risk. 
But do not be afraid is this challenge to a life defined by courage and hope and not defined by someone whose mind is poisoned with hate. I'm reading a book called Eleanor Oliphant, a delightful novel by Gail Honeymoon. The main character is Eleanor Oliphant, a young adult, socially awkward, very much alone. A young woman scarred physically and emotionally by an angry, abusive, mentally ill mother and by a fire. She struggles to understand the world around her and struggles to make friends. But at one point, she sits before a mirror, taking in what she calls the circus freak side of my face. She ran her fingers over the scar tissue, caressing the contours of those ridges. And she says, I walked through the fire and I lived. There are scars on my heart, just as thick, just as disfiguring as those on my face. I know they're there. I hope some undamaged tissue remains, a patch through which love can come in and flow out. I hope. Jesus says, do not fear. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you a place inside where love can flow in and can flow out. We're not on a point system with God. We don't have rewards cards where we have to do just so much in order to get a free meal. No, it's God's good pleasure. Maybe like me, you grew up with images of God that were angry and judgmental. God just kind of itching to send you to hell. But here it talks about an image of God who is generous, who wants to give us things, who wants to give us the kingdom. A God who takes pleasure in giving. If you recall the movie A Christmas Story, and if you watch TV at all around the Christmas holidays, you cannot miss this. It's on everywhere. It's on a loop, I think, on some channel. The boy, Ralphie, wants a Red Ryder BB gun more than he wants his next breath. He wants it for Christmas only to encounter every obstacle and every adult raising every possible objection, mostly that he'll shoot his eye out. But he persists, and on Christmas morning, he's tearing through wrapping paper, only to finally come to the conclusion that there is no Red Ryder BB gun for him. And his shoulders slump and he sighs. And that's when his dad says, "Uh, Ralphie, I think you missed one. And he perks up just a little bit and he says, over there, behind the tree. And Ralphie goes and sure enough, sure enough, it is the BB gun desire of his heart. But I'm more focused on the pleasure of the parent who bought the gift. A smile of quiet delight in a child's joy. We need that image of God. Delighting in giving because it is the very nature of God to be so filled with grace. Because that is the God who delights in us. If you're like me, maybe you have a little talk with yourself in the mirror sometimes, but maybe that talk needs to begin with God delights in me. 
When Luke says, do not fear, he starts with this statement of God's delight as kind of the basis for not fearing, not being defined by fear. And then Jesus says that part of not fearing is choosing generosity as a way of life, a faith in more rather than less. Sell your possessions, give alms. No one can take this generous spirit away from you. It's choosing to be defined by courage instead of fear. Choosing to believe in a God who delights instead of judges. Choosing to live life openly, generously, freely, kindly, instead of hiding in our emotional bomb shelters. He's telling us that we are not to be defined by what we can accumulate, but rather to be defined by who and how and well we love. We're to be defined by choosing love, even in, especially in, this climate today of fear and hatred and violence. He tells us to be ready for action with our lamps lit, a reference to a wedding tradition of preparing and then going off to bring the bride home. You think you'll be right back, but brides need persuading. And the parents of brides need even more persuading. And the return is delayed and the lamps go out because they're not prepared for a long time. And if this God takes delight in giving the kingdom, it is our role to be prepared for when that breaks into life. When this delighting God comes knocking on the door. We need to look for those places, those patches in life where love flows in and flows out. Those places where we discover God. And when, we, when this delighting God comes and knocks and we're ready, then there comes this shocking reversal of the status quo. When I read the text for the first time, I was just put off by the slavery word. But if you read the rest of it, there is this shocking reversal. There is this one who comes and hitches up his robes and kneels to serve. Can you imagine that? Can you picture how these folks who know what they're supposed to do, suddenly they don't know what they're supposed to do? Eyes darting around looking for some cue. Uh, I'm supposed to be doing that, and now he's doing it. What am I supposed to do? A delighting God, delighting even more in the chaos she has started. But isn't that the question? How would I act in this great reversal of the status quo? When slaves are treated as free, indeed treated as honored guests, when those whose lives are subject to the whims of another are now given hospitality by this delighting host. How do I act and live when the violence that characterizes our culture is overcome with wisdom and with calm and peace? How do I live when the hungry have an endless banquet? How do I live when those who have been judged so harshly by so much bad theology find acceptance full and complete? How do I live when this abusive man extends a hand across the rail of his hospital bed and asks for forgiveness from the very son he has abused? 
How do I live when this world of pain and suffering becomes a place of music and dancing and joy? How do I live when grief turns to laughter? How will we ever see these things come to pass if we're not looking for them, if we're not already leaning into this generous kingdom of God? If we're not seeking those things even now? Keep your lamps lit, Jesus says. A great reversal is coming. And when we do, we can join that cold, bundled band of believers at the Fairview Cemetery in DeKalb, Illinois, and to say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And we can hear that voice that says, I forgot my gloves, I forgot my wallet. I forgot my hearing aids. And we can smile and know that we're having a good time. Amen.